CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, Emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, when will the market reward its most attractive segments? Oh wait, it's already happening. Also, why we should stay away from bad trading partners and instead take another look at municipal bonds. We will also check in on our CLS investment themes, specifically smart beta, and we'll discuss a CLS study that proves that risk budgeting works. Our guest today is CLS Chief Investment Strategist Mark Pfeffer, and my interview is with Eric Clark. CEO of CLS's sister company, Orion Advisor Services. Eric is a genuine rock star in the financial technology industry. <laughs> Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start out with a look back at the markets as we always do. How is 2019 looking so far? Great start to the year. The last week was a little bit choppier, but we're off to a really good start this year. January, uh, again, was a very nice counter to how awful December was. Again, December was the worst December since the 1930s, but January was a fantastic start to the year. Uh, Almost double-digit returns in the overall global equity market. We did see double-digit returns in smaller companies. Uh, Domestic companies did well. International companies did well. Bonds did well. Commodities did well. So really, it's a great start to the year. All right, cool. So one question on the minds of many investors is, when will the market reward its most attractive segments? So international stocks, particularly emerging market stocks, and certain styles of investing like value investing. Has that started to happen yet? Well, if you just look at this year, it's it's pretty much a scratch. And quite frankly, domestic might be a little bit ahead and growth stocks are a little bit ahead of value stocks. But if you take a bigger step back, it, there really was an inflection point that took place in mid-September. And since then, uh, international markets have outperformed domestic, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. And I think that it really was a major inflection point. And obviously, given the way our portfolios are positioned, we hope that continues. You know, those inflection points are sort of hidden in calendar returns. And, you know, when people look at 2018, they just have to remember market moves just don't begin on January 1st and end on December 31st. And things can actually happen over the course of the year. And there were really like three of them last year. And and actually, I guess there were two of them. There were three different sort of eras. But the one in September, the reason why that's really interesting is that in the middle of September, U.S.-based uh, companies began to slow down returning their profits they had from overseas. And and a lot of those profits were coming back, and they're really fueling stock buybacks. So companies were buying back their own company stock. And the buybacks were totaling kind of a whopping $60 billion each and every month uh, for a solid eight months up until September. And then they just absolutely plummeted, which meant that significant buying power disappeared. And you could actually see that in the returns. 
Right, and and as you said, that that had quite a large impact. And you ran through the numbers in your monthly review um, that came out at the end of January. Let's walk through a few of the big ones. Yep. So I mean, we're already a few weeks into February, but uh, at the end of January, when we looked at since the inflection point, that international had outperformed U.S. by over three percent. Again, value stocks outperformed growth stocks. And I think what's interesting is even though the overall stock market had been down since beginning September, despite that great January, there were some asset classes that had gains. Emerging markets, for instance, emerging market equities are up uh, 4%. Real estate had a positive gain of 3%. Bonds are up 3%. So really, during this time, it's been a period of really good relative performance for globally diversified portfolios. And we do expect that to continue. Okay, well, let's bring in our guest now, CLS's fixed income expert and chief investment strategist, Mark Pfeffer, calling in from New York. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So, Mark, in your weekly three that came out this week, um, you wrote about an area of the market that you're paying particular attention to at the moment, municipal bonds. Why should we care about munis? Yes, and I've written about this topic before. Um, what I had discussed was that the fact that the new tax code has reduced marginal rates, so that makes municipal bonds a viable and relatively attractive investment for high net worth investors, especially for those like me that live in high state taxes in New York, looking to maximize deductions and minimize the taxable income. Muni bonds are not taxed at the federal level, and many are exempt from state and local taxes if you buy municipal bonds that are issued by that state. Historically as well, those bonds have been safer investments uh, that debt has been safer than debt issued by corporations. The default rates are actually much lower. Um, also, they in 2018, municipal bonds followed treasury rates upward and then back down as, when, as rates went back down at the latter part of 2018. <clears throat> when you look right now at the, the 10-year, which is currently yielding just o- above 265, the municipal ratio, that ratio of um, municipal bonds against treasuries is right now about 83%, which historically is high. And more importantly, it's attractive. And if rates do rise, which we don't know if they will from here, um, revenues from these municipal issuers will also rise as well. And as well, they're a good source of income, and they belong to me in any diversified balanced portfolio. Okay, and, and you wrote your weekly three together with two other members of the team, uh, Junior Investment Research Analyst Alec Liu and Associate Quantitative Portfolio Manager Jackson Lee. Um, Alec's segment was about something that you'll appreciate, Mark, as a sports fan. He wrote about bad trading partners, and he used the example of the LA Lakers trying to trade for NBA superstar Anthony Davis and basically trying to pay way too much for him. And of course, he connected this to investing. We have a lot of sports analogies in our writing, but this one is really apt. Yes, and as, it's funny that you mentioned that because I referred to Alec and Jackson as the dream team, another sort of basketball <laughs> analogy from the famous U.S. basketball team from uh, a couple of decades ago. Yes, the Lakers were ready to, to sort of essentially trade half their roster, including the rights to future players in terms of draft picks to land Davis. Uh, basketball, as everyone knows, is a team sport, and even with Anthony Davis and LeBron James, two of the probably five greatest players in basketball, it would be a team with two stars and a roster of sort of, you know, I won't call them retreads, but certainly lower tier players, and it would be very hard to compete, especially when those two, if, if they were either injured or had to go to the bench, uh, the team is not going to be able to necessarily hold the lead. The lesson that we have here is trading partner that they were looking at was asking too much, and thankfully right now, I, you know, happily as a, as a basketball fan that that trade didn't go through. And we look at it as a connection to investing. We need to look for fair value in investing, and that didn't appear to be a fair value trade. 
Warren Buffett, who's probably the most famous investor, actually mentioned that a good company needs to be bought at a good price to realize value investing. So Amazon is a perfect example right now that, that Alec had, had referred to, that it's a great company, and I've actually mentioned in some of my other weeklies where it is a, it's a dynastic type of company, a darling of the stock market, but when you look at it from a PE multiple, it's expensive. The PE of that is around above 80, where the PE of the S&P 500 right now is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 17. So that trading partner, we, we, you know, when Alec looked at it, it was asking too much. And we, we view the overall U.S. market, um, while it did get more attractive, it's still, relatively speaking, versus the rest of the world, it's still expensive. So what do we do? We wait for our trading partner to become more reasonable before buying it. And of course, that's what we do here at CLS. We wait for reason and good value, which we believe wins out in the end. Um, on that note, let's check in on our investment themes, Rusty, that guide our decision-making here. Um, you had an investment committee meeting last month. Do you have any news to report? I do, but before I get to that, just a couple things. First of all, Mark's comment about the dream team of Jackson Alec. I loved it. Totally true. And also, I like the fact that we got to talk about, well, Mark got to talk about basketball, because now I think he's talked about baseball, football, mm -hmm. hockey, basketball. I don't know if he's done car racing yet, but he can talk about that too. He'll so find a way. I think he's this is good. So I brought in a new sport for him. All right. So for our investment committee, really our investment themes, and the reason why we have investment themes at CLS is, again, we have a lot of strategies and a lot of different portfolios here at CLS. And of course, we have a lot of different people and personalities and perspectives on our team. And what the investment themes enable us to do is really to communicate the consistencies across the portfolios. So it's just easier messaging. And each of these themes, you should be able to see articulated in each of the portfolios. At our last IC meeting, we are considering two possible new themes. So stay tuned. We are still debating internally. But currently, our three themes, again, are, just do a quick review, is be active. Uh, we believe that portfolio managers and investors do need to be active in their portfolio decisions and make adjust adjustments based off of changing uh, expected returns and risk within the marketplace. So that means using actively managed uh, portfolios. It means using actively managed funds within those portfolios. The second thing is be smart, and that is uh, we talk a lot about smart beta ETFs. We're one of the leading users of smart beta ETFs in the industry. Half of our portfolios are in smart beta on average. Um, so that is what the Be Smart theme is about. And the last thing is be creative. And that just means uh, we have to be creative in the way we diversify portfolios. Fixed income still makes a lot of sense, but it also means we can use alternatives and real assets such as commodities and real estate. And you highlighted Smart Beta in your monthly review. How did Smart Beta do for us last year? Well, I think the... Uh, I, it's mostly a good story. There is one offset to it. But the reason why it's mostly a good story is, first of all, in our quarterly reference guide, which is, is a great re resource. You can go to clsinvest.com and, and find access to our quarterly reference guide. But one of the slides in it is we look at the five factors that we follow. And these are really the five big factors, uh, return factors in investing. And in short, 2018 was yet another winning year for factor investing. Uh, three of the five act factors outperformed. And the average of the five outperformed the market by more than 1%. So again, factor investing just gives you an edge. And it gives you an edge. I think in the last 20 plus years, factor investing has, the average factor has always worked in down markets. It doesn't mean it always will in the future, but there are reasons why it generally should do well. What did not do well last year is that small caps and value stocks did not work as well. But again, the bottom line is factor investing did well in another down year. So it was a good year for factor investing in general, but did we pick the right smart beta ETFs? 
Uh, this answer is mostly yes. I could just overwhelm you with great stats here, but I do have, again, the offset. So one, first of all, in general at CLS, when you look at the R holdings, our ETF holdings, we pick the right ETFs. And you look at those ETFs and they compare them to how they perform relative to their peer groups, is our average uh, ETF did outperform like nearly two-thirds of their peers. So that was good. And with the average return being uh, well more than 1% in excess of the peer group average, but more specifically, when you look at smart beta ETFs, the average peer group rank was more like the top, almost top 70%, and uh, the average was over 2% uh, relative to peers. So again, the answer is yes, we did pick. When we picked smart beta ETFs, we did pick good ones. Now here's my offset, which I've talked about twice. So we talked about factor investing that helped us. We talked about our security selection that helped us, but it should be pointed out that the one factor we liked most of the five was value and that did underperform. And then when within the value uh, factor, our ETF selections did slightly underperform. So there was, it wasn't all peaches and cream, but mostly. <laughs> but mostly, okay. <laughs> all right, well, something else that guides our decision-making here is of course our risk budgeting methodology, which Jackson Lee wrote about in your weekly three, Mark. Um, as we said often on the show and in our various commentaries, we believe risk budgeting is the best approach to building balanced multi-asset portfolios. Uh, Jackson and his team conducted a study on the effectiveness of risk budgeting. What did he find? Uh, absolutely. And by the way, as I mentioned about Alex and <clears throat> Jackson being a dream team, specifically Jackson is one of the best writers, and he writes, if you read his weekly commentaries that he helps me with and all of his daily commentaries, they're terrific. He really is a great writer. Um, so what he came up with is, obviously everyone knows we are a risk budgeting shop, and we believe in risk budgeting because why? Number one, it establishes investor – it helps establish investor expectations. Portfolios with more stable risk tend to have lower behavior gaps and better performance over time. The first reason is intuitive, but the foundation of the others, uh, our roles is twofold. Number one, portfolio management and coaching. Uh, that's our, what we look at our roles as being. Risk budgeting helps us show our clients what we are, that we are keeping our promises. We want to manage their expectations of the markets. So the study confirmed the other reasons of the portfolio with more stable risk to have lower behavior gaps and better performance over time. And the correlation between the fund's risk variability and performance were negatively correlated. In other words, funds with more volatile risk tend to have lower risk-adjusted returns. And more stable funds naturally would have, have outperformed more volatile funds by 1.3% annualized. And more stable funds have also experienced lower behavior gaps than more volatile funds by 13 basis points. First of all, I've got to say that work that Jackson was huge. I mean, it was so in-depth. It was so exhaustive. And and. I mean, that is, just a, that is a huge study, which actually confirmed other studies we've already done talking about how stable risk portfolios are just better portfolios for investors. Hmm. Okay, well, our final topic for today, uh, Rusty, you wrote about a change that's coming to the Weekly 3, or has already come to the Weekly 3. Yeah. What's it about, and why did you want our readers and listeners to know about it? Well, I think this is pretty big, and the initial response has been overwhelmingly positive, and I think it was kind of my reaction that other people have had. It's like, gosh, why didn't we not do this before? But First of all, a little background. Uh, recently, I was lucky enough to attend uh, uh, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and I was in the Wisdom Tree Behavioral Finance Executive Education Program, which was really, really cool. And anyway, one of the topics was talking about information design and how important it is and, and how it can impact behavior of the readers and particularly investors. And so what we did on the Weekly Three 
And there's really two things I want to talk about. One is we reverse the columns in terms of the time frames we're looking at. So usually in a, in a performance table, you'll see what the asset class is in the first column, and then you'll have the short time, the shorter term time frames, and as you move to the right, you'll get longer term. And that is pretty much an industry convention. But what we've done is flipped it around. And the reason why is that it puts the focus on the long term. And quite frankly, uh, that represents us well because we're long-term investors and it represents all the readers and our investors who we work with because they're also long-term investors. So it makes a lot of sense to think about and it kind of takes away sort of that emotional reaction to some of the shorter-term numbers, which often causes people to change their investment programs, which happen obviously in the fourth quarter, not necessarily at CLS because believe it or not, at CLS last year, despite being global, despite being a tough year, we had our best year for retaining clients since we've been measuring the numbers, which is phenomenal. I think there's a lot of reasons to go into that. That's probably worth another commentary. But anyway, with showing the longer term numbers before shorter term numbers should positively impact investor behavior. The second thing we did is the changing of the rows. And so in the rows, usually you put the stock market first, then followed by fixed income and alternatives. What we did is really investors, their most important job is to really beat the bank. If I mean, you could just keep your money in the bank in a CD or just, you know, just collecting interest, or you can take additional risk and get a higher return over time by investing. And so the job there is really beating the bank, not beating the market. And it's also having a return above and beyond inflation, really increasing your purchasing power, which again, if you just leave your money in the bank, it most likely is not going to grow in time, at least relative to inflation. So what we've done uh, in terms of the performance reports is show cash in the top row and fixed income, and basically showing that investors, you're trying to beat the bank, and as a long-term investor by investing in balanced portfolios, which emphasize stock market exposure, that you should do better over time. So I think there's two really big changes. And again, the feedback has been great. And anybody listening, uh, if you have additional feedback, please let me know. Cool. All right. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. We'll say goodbye to our guest, Mark. Thanks for joining us on CLS's The Weighing Machine. Thanks again for having me. All right, and next up is Rusty's Q&A. So today he talks to Eric Clark, who's the CEO of CLS's sister company, Orion Advisor Services. Rusty, set this up for us. Well, when you're talking about Eric Clark, you really need some runway, talking about his bio. And I, I did talk about it a little bit. So again, he is the chief investment officer. I just said chief investment. I'm chief executive officer <laughs> of Orion Advisor Services. And... Um, but there's a lot more that goes to him than that. In front, I did say he's a rock star of the financial technology industry, fintech, and it's true. You can just simply Google him. Uh, for instance, he recently, in Investment News, one of the leading publications for industry, he was awarded uh, one of the Innovator Awards, which only goes to a handful of people. And the, and the list of uh, people who have won this in the past are just huge names, and Eric is now part of that. The other thing about Eric, which is a unique perspective, is that he is a Clark. And remember, CLS, the C stands for Clark. His father, Patrick, started the firm. Uh, Eric's brother, Todd, uh, ran CLS Investments for many years. So his perspective on CLS goes back to the very beginning. And uh, this interview with him is, is just great. I mean, Eric is very energetic, very entrepreneurial, uh, very smart. And, and I think we capture a little bit of this in the interview, and I look forward to having him in future interviews as well. All right, let's take a listen. Our guest today on CLS is the Weighing Machine is Eric Clark, Chief Executive Officer at Orion Advisory Services. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Rusty. I'm excited to have an opportunity to spend some time with you this afternoon and 
and uh, exchange ideas. Heck yeah. So I'm excited to have you on here for so many different reasons. Your story about Northstar, Orion, CLS, just the whole history. And of course, you know, obviously we've got a really great thing going here with Orion and Northstar. And just kind of talking about the culture, the chemistry, and just want to hear your thoughts on it. So first of all, we need the background, we need the history. So how did you get started at CLS and then how Orion came out of that? Thanks, that's a great question, Rusty. I started out uh, right out of graduate school as a wholesaler for CLS investments in Northern California. And my wife and I moved out to San Francisco and I had the opportunity out there to truly learn the business, really know and understand advisors, uh, had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of client meetings, and it was a really informative time. I, I really think back of some of the advisors that I worked with during that time frame as, as great mentors to me, uh, both professionally and personally. And as I was working with those advisors, there uh, became opportunities for us to, to use technology in the mid to late 90s to improve our ability to communicate information with the clients that uh, we were jointly serving with those advisors. And over time, as I, as I shared those ideas and, and feedback with our executive team, uh, I was asked to come back and head up the operations and IT groups uh, for CLS investments, which meant that uh, my wife and I needed to move from San Francisco uh, to Omaha, Nebraska. And after a couple of conversations, we, we did uh, eventually agree to, to do that. And as I was running the operational uh, processing teams for CLS, it became apparent to me that we needed uh, a better portfolio accounting solution, a better way for us to help support the growth of our, our uh, rapidly growing RIA business. Yeah. And we couldn't find what we needed off the shelf. Quite frankly, we, we tried a couple of different solutions and those solutions really didn't meet our needs as a fiduciary advisory firm. We weren't charging uh, commissions for our services. We were charging uh, asset-based fees. We were uh, wanting to improve the level of reporting that we were uh, sending out to the clients and to the advisors. We wanted to start exposing information on the web, making the portfolio investments more transparent. And because of that, uh, just over uh, 19 years ago now, nearly 20 years ago, we uh, came up with a business plan and split the uh, technology business off of the asset management business and created the company that today is is Orion. Yep. So first of all, just backfilling a little bit. So how many years were you out in the field talking to advisors again? Two. Two years. Two years, right out of grad school. And I spent two years in Northern California. Okay, so obviously your whole career has been working with advisors. So one question I already have for you is a question I ask virtually all my guests is when it comes to the top advisors, in your opinion, what qualities or attributes do you think really make the top-notch financial advisors? Well, that's a pretty easy question to ask in the sense that to provide great advice, uh, that advice has to be done on a fiduciary basis. I'm a big believer in that. And, 
And the reason I say it's an easy question to answer is that when you're working with an advisor that truly puts the client's needs first, it becomes readily apparent that they're interested in that client's best interests. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a really fun thing to start working with those advisors. Now, there are different uh, value propositions that advisors have, different niches that they serve, different market uh, opportunities, but that is one underlying characteristic that they all have. The other thing that's quite fun is to work with an advisor that truly understands their niche, what makes their business unique. And when you're working with an advisor that has narrowly defined their uh their target market, they have a very specific value proposition. Typically, the third characteristic that you see working with that advisor then is that they're growing rapidly yeah. because it's very clear to their strategic partners and critical contacts you know, when to refer them uh, business and, and uh, prospects. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so that's a really cool story how Orion kind of came out of CLS. But an even cooler story is the story of how Orion has grown so much. So tell us about these 19 years. I mean... Well, we didn't start out growing very rapidly. We hit the market as a uh, software as a service company in the early 2000s. And, and at first, uh, most firms didn't want to uh, outsource the portfolio accounting. They wanted to have software that were they could install on their own servers inside of their own uh, office. And quite honestly, it was it was on premise. And so it took a little while, but as doing business on the web became more uh, readily accepted, then our business started to grow as well. Along the way, we certainly were able to have the benefit of working with CLS as an early adopter of the technology, received the feedback from the CLS teams so that we knew exactly what tweaks and changes we needed to, to make along the way to allow us to be successful in, in bringing on additional advisors. Yeah. So just to kind of give us some context to the listeners, just how big is Orion now and how have we grown? Yeah, so today we serve just over 1,800 individual advisory firms. Uh, we have just over $750 billion of assets that uh, we provide services to. And specifically what we do at Orion, when I refer to ourselves as a portfolio accounting provider, we really provide three things to our advisors. First is reporting, second is trading, and third is billing. And if you look at the reporting, trading, and billing services, there are a lot of things underneath each of those categories, but those are the three main things that, yeah. that we provide to those 1,800 firms and the $750 billion, uh, in assets that we provide administration services for. So Orion has benefited from a bunch of different things. I mean, first of all, financial services, great industry. Technology, great industry. But even if you take these things into account, Orion has just had great success. So what is the secret to success at Orion? We are in a competitive landscape. We certainly have competitors that have made us better over the years. We have had the good fortune of working with some of the nation's very best advisory firms like CLS Investments over the years. And so we've received a lot of feedback. 
And we have really done three things as uh, culturally as an organization that have allowed us to be successful over the years and, and hopefully uh, win more than our fair share of opportunities are out there. Uh, first is that we are in the tech business, so we are innovative. We have to be innovative. Uh, we, we don't want to become the, uh, a firm like Blockbuster Video or a BlackBerry. We want to uh, make sure that our technology isn't just helpful to our advisors and their clients today, but we're positioning and uh, – future-proofing our business, if you will. And yeah. to future-proof our business, we have to do the, it brings me to our second thing uh, that we like to do at Orion, and that is uh, disrupt. We, we like to disrupt our status quo, uh, the way that we do things and the way that our advisors do things. We always want to challenge that to make sure that we're doing things in the best manner possible. And I'm a big believer that if, if if we're not willing to disrupt our own business, somebody else certainly will, yeah. um, either an existing competitor that's in the landscape today or a competitor that uh, will be a, a startup. So as we innovate and disrupt uh, our own business model, we believe that brings us to our third uh, characteristic or uh factor of our success and that's winning yeah. you know we love to win at orion we love it when our advisors win and we love when their investors win yeah how do you define the winning so i mean you just sort of did in more qualitative terms but do you have more precise terms how do you define winning we define winning when we help our advisors first and foremost so as those yeah. advisors are successful in uh providing scale to their business um, when we can help them uh, individualize our technology to help accentuate their value proposition and, and grow their business, we, we define that as a big win. And we can chart those wins through growth of the firms that we're serving. And we can also chart wins by the number of firms that we're onboarding. Um, and right now we're onboarding around 25 firms a month. We have done that successfully for the past three years. Um, so we're adding essentially about a firm a day, and that's been a nice uh, growth rate for us and something that creates a lot of opportunities for everybody that works here. How many employees at Orion now? We have right right uh, at 400 employees. And uh, every day that number seems to be growing. It, it is. We're, we're always growing as we, as we add firms to our technology platform. We want to make sure that we maintain a high service level, high net promoter score with our users. And so it is something that we are willing to, to back up that growth with additional investments in the technology and in the staff that, that we use to, to service those advisors. Yeah. So you kind of touched upon my next question already a little bit, but you know, one thing I think that you've stressed for years is really the importance of culture within an organization and the how important teams are. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't believe you can have an innovative company without having uh, a innovative culture. Innovation is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. So mm -hmm. we have to make sure that our entire team uh, understands are the importance of innovation. I always tell our new hires, look, when you come on board here, it's exciting to be involved in a tech business. It's exciting that we're innovating. But what that means for you on a personal basis is that you've got to uh, be willing to change. 
And the way that you're doing things today when you get started with us is not the way that you're going to be doing things six to nine months from now. So we want you to be able to readily accept and adapt to those changes as we uh, put them to you. And, and please come back to us with changes that you suggest that we uh, of things that we can be doing differently as a business. So innovation is exciting until uh, sometimes innovation impacts us on a very personal basis. Uh -huh. And then we've got to remember, okay, this is why I'm being asked to change. This is why we're going to be doing things differently in the future. Yeah. All right, so before I ask you a couple industry questions, just kind of like talking about Orion a little more, there's just so much going on in Orion. What are you most excited about moving forward with Orion and the whole organization? As I look at uh, the marketplace and the, the advisors that we serve, I could not be more excited about the fiduciary advisor space right now. It's the winning uh, category, if you will, as far as financial services go. And the the need to serve investors as a fiduciary is something that the regulators have, have latched on to, and it's definitely uh, where the puck is going, so to speak. And so it's exciting to be in that space because we're the beneficiary of a lot of disruption that's taking place in the industry. A lot of advisors are questioning their need to have uh, an affiliation with a household brand name. They're questioning their need to have an affiliation with uh, a, a brokerage firm uh, and the FINRA regulations. You know, they're, they're, they're in essence saying, gosh, maybe a cleaner structure for me would be to just be regulated by the SEC. And what are the opportunities that that provides to me and my clients? And, and we're really supporting those advisors as they make those decisions to go independent. And it's, it's a pretty exciting thing. I love working with entrepreneurs and these independent advisors are absolute entrepreneurs and they're, they're just talking to us, you know, at the early stages, obviously, about forming their business and, and uh, going out on their own oftentimes, um, breaking away, if you will. And those are, those are exciting things to be involved in. Cool. All right. So coming back to the industry, you, you've been doing this presentation called Fact or Fiction, Registered Investment Advisor Technology Myths. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but could I pick a couple of them out? Absolutely. All right. So um, myth number two, legacy tech still works in 2018 or 2019, I should say. That, I think, is a myth. And, and the reason I think that's a myth is that a couple of things have, have happened in the world around us that have changed uh, the, the thought that legacy tech can be used to serve uh, clients. First and foremost, uh, technology is disrupting our world around us in a very uh, significant way. In fact, the rate of change that we experience today is uh, highly accelerated as to the rate of change that we experienced even five years ago. Mm -hmm. So today, you know, as I travel and meet with advisors, first thing I do when I land is I, I open up my Uber app and I, I request a, a car to get to my destination. The experience is good. I'm expecting that the, the car and the driver show up. I'm expecting to have uh, a good payment uh, process in place. I'm expecting to be able to chart my 
uh, ride, see where we're at, see when I'm going to arrive. I can share where I'm at with uh, my wife or anybody else that might wonder what I'm doing. And that's a very different experience than hopping in a cab, not having a clue if you're going uh, (laughs) in the right direction. Uh, the most efficient route, and even having a uh, sense for when you're going to arrive. So because technology has increased user expectations, our need to serve clients in a very transparent, friendly way impacts our firm's brands. Yeah. So it's important that we provide a great experience, and using legacy tech just won't get us there. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So I only got a couple more. I'm not going to go through all 10 here. Myth number four. So myth number four is I might have to define a couple of these terms here too, though I'm sure everybody listening knows them, but the big TAMP model, so um, a turnkey asset management program, uh, that model works for small and mid-sized broker-dealers. I I think that the idea that a small or mid-sized broker-dealer, or for that matter, a small or mid-sized advisory firm needs to work with a very large TAMP service is just simply not the case. There are uh, very different value propositions and in, in this business and in this space, and I'm not a believer that it's a one-size-fits-all. So I think it's important that as firms define their value proposition, they really look for uh, technologies, strategies, and uh, businesses that they can work with, partnerships uh, that they can bring to their clients to further accentuate and differentiate their value proposition. If we all essentially uh, start using the same uh, technology or the same TAMP, it's going to be very difficult for a firm to differentiate themselves from the competition down the street. Yeah. All right, myth number 10. This is my favorite one of the 10, actually. So this is robots can learn empathy and eventually replace human advisors. When when we think of the threat of robo-advisors, certainly we want to have a technology experience that's on par with what the robos are doing. However, there are investors that are do-it-yourselfers and investors that are delegators. And I think it's really important that advisors make sure that the technology and the partnerships that they have in place support those investors that are delegators. Those are the very best long-term clients for our advisors. Clients that are do-it-yourselfers uh, typically have a very difficult time lining up with an advisor and putting themselves in a position where that's a compatible long-term relationship. So the technology and the uh, asset management partnerships that are put into place need to augment that delegator relationship. And as long as that's in place, um, you know, the advisor will not only be able to provide empathy, but they'll provide the expertise that that delegator needs to have a successful financial outcome. Yep. All right. So really my last question here um, is, so it's kind of a tough question because you're so engaged and energetic and entrepreneurial that really you're probably just so excited about the future, but you've already accomplished so much. What are you most proud of so far professionally? 
I'm really proud of the team that we have here at Orion. I love working with people that are a lot smarter than I am and a lot more talented than I am. I also really appreciate the relationships that I've created with advisors along the way. And those advisors that we do business with uh, have become some of my uh, closest personal relationships that I have. And I, I really thoroughly enjoy and appreciate this industry and for the opportunities that it's given to me. And I am especially excited about how uh, technology can free up even more time and create more scale for our advisors in the future because they're going to be able to, in turn, then help more investors that need and want their help. Cool. Lorek, this has been great. I uh, look forward to hopefully making you a semi-regular guest on the weighing machine, you know, down the months down the road, you know. I'm not making you guarantee anything at this point. But any closing words for us right now? No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast, Rusty. It's it's an honor to to work with you and to be on the on the the show today. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. All right, good stuff. Well, good to hear from Eric, as always. Uh, That is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.